we should talk about the Fonzie verse. The Fonzie verse. Yeah, because one of my favorite party games, really, which is saying why no one invites me to parties, it's like, okay, guys, name all the spinoffs of Happy Days. Mm. And most people <laughs> will get, they'll get like two or three. And I always get them with the standout. There's one that no one remembers, but I do. Um, oh, really? Yep. Yeah, go ahead. I'll, I'll quiz you. Well, there's Laverne and Shirley. Okay. That's the big one. Yeah. There's Joni Loves Chachi. When you look at me. Oh, boy. Which I don't they, know. Do they ever? The, yes. I, I'm trying to remember when Mork and Mindy. Yeah. Uh, Shazbat. Sort of, I guess it was, they went back and made it canonical, right? That he had yep. actually visited Earth in the 50s? No, no, no. It, it was, Did I mean, it? since that's the first place he showed up. Yeah, that was canonical. Because I read recently that he, because uh, I have something else, something else more related I want to talk about. Um, <laughs> that he, uh, I read, I read somewhere that originally that episode where he shows up, that it was yes. supposed to be a dream sequence. And then they went back after they started developing Mark and Mindy, they went back and kind of recontextualized it so it, they took out no. the dream I, i'm not sure about that but yeah so yeah there's that i'm still fishing i can't think of anything else besides there's one three. more from 1979 the one i always stump people with it is a sideways spinoff and okay uh i just looked it up to make sure that uh i had my fact correct about what it spun off of was mork and mindy which makes it an honorary Oh, really? Spinoff of Happy Days, which is, you know, it's part of the Fonzieverse. It was called Out of the Blue. Out of the blue. And uh, it was basically another kind of fantasy thing. Instead, this time, it's uh, it had an angel in training was the gimmick. <laughs> and so it was their attempt to like, oh, let's take another bizarre supernatural being out of and put them in the present day. So it had a crossover with Mork and Mindy as a backdoor pilot and then became a, a series for one season. So out of the blue is the one I always get people with. I'm like, yeah, see, ha ha. And you could also include if you wanted to, it's not a spinoff, but happy days itself, of course, came from love American style. Love American style. One episode of Love American Style. I vaguely remember that. That that is yeah, or vaguely hey, remember. Love being American aware of Style that. was and still has one of the most uh, singable earworm mm-hmm. uh, themes of the period. Uh, w- was an anthology show, and so every week it was just another like, here's a story about love, American style, and one of them was a nostalgic flashback to the 50s with the Cunningham family. Ron Howard was already playing Richie. Uh, I think some of the character actors may have changed, but it was basically where Gary Marshall's like going, hey, I like these people. Let's do a whole show set in 1955. We'll call it Happy Days. Because I thought there was some kind of connection between that and American Graffiti, which has... Uh, no, it has no has. connection to American Graffiti. Is really even what? though it has the same same actor in it. Yeah, just a same actor. Game. But actually, I think that was just part of around that time in the seventies was this right. huge. As it always happens, when the 
generation who were kids get to be adults, they get nostalgic for their childhood or teen years. And so basically every 20 years is like, because right now people are getting all nostalgic for early 2000s. And I'm like, Jesus, good luck, kids. But I mean, same with us. When (laughs) I know, like, uh, we had our, like, (laughs) <laughs> there was a 90s nostalgia kick for a good long while and i was like yeah man that's awesome yeah i remember what that was like cool but that's what it was there was a big grease obviously american graffiti uh all these things that were 50 style started to boom and that was again that was abc and and uh gary marshall being sharp and going oh yeah 50s nostalgia all right we can do that and Ron Howard just happened to star in two of them. Yeah. He wasn't Richie Cunningham or anything. Anyway, so yeah, the whole thing with the Fonzie verse always cracks me up because shows that have multiple, multiple spinoffs and you just go like, wow, things like, you know, the Mary Tyler Moore show had 85 million spinoffs. Yeah. Uh, including a drama, you know, including Lou Grant. You're like, what? <laughs> right. Um, so uh, that was a time period in the 70s and 80s where they're like going, Oh, you liked that supporting character? What if they had their own show? Do you want to follow the adventures of uh, of Colonel Potter and Klinger and, and Father Mulcahy and Radar after the Korean War? You get after MASH. Holy hell. Oh, anyway. <laughs> was that, that was uh, bad? Yeah. I don't remember ever watching that. Oh, no. Aftermath was pretty bad. It also was just pointless is the thing. It was just, you miss these characters. We want to show you more. And you're like, but it's not. The setting's gone. The whole kind of uh, every now and then heavy subject matter mixed in with the comedy is gone. It just became a 1950s or early 60s sitcom with wow Klinger and his korean wife he doesn't dress in dresses anymore great yay <laughs> so wait what, what, what was it the the morgan mendy spinoff was called out of the blue out of or, the blue you know? yes and who was in it anybody any names no uh hold on i still have it open <laughs> honestly none I'm, I'm looking down the list and there there's nobody jimmy brogan was the angel named Random. That was his name, Random. <laughs> I mean, what, he, he, there was just a character that appeared on Marky Mindy? Yeah. It's, here's under Obvi- its IMDb page, or sorry, Wikipedia page, here's a little thing where it goes, spinoff debate. Out of the Blue has engendered debate among some viewers concerning its precise relationship to Happy Days. The controversy arises from the fact that the first episode of the series was broadcast a little over one week prior to an episode of Happy Days, featuring Jimmy Brogan as the character Random. So actually, Random, the character showed up on Happy Days. Wow. Wow. Oh, and the crossover with Mork and Mindy was after they started out I of see, the blue. to try to, right. They had Mork to, and Mindy crossover into an episode yeah, of... Yeah, a promo thing, um, right? That makes sense. Yeah, a promo thing. I wonder, was that, um, so was yeah, that during Mork's, like, their last their last crappy season, where they, they were well, just throwing I mean, everything 79, Mork and Mindy did kick around to, what, 81? Somewhere in there? Something I mean, because like I think, now you're, now you're stumping because it really hold on, I'm no they, they were always game oh it went till 82 uh, man that's amazing that, that was past you know popeye and him starting his film career i'm sorry if you have the same actor playing the same character and he showed up in the 50s and and hung out with 
It was an episode called Chachi Sells His Soul. <laughs> wow. Uh, that's amazing. So, yeah, that's definitely a crossover. That's ridiculous. I love that stuff. I just saw a, uh, a clip. YouTube it was one of the things that YouTube just showed to me, probably because I was searching for <laughs> Mark and Mindy stuff. Uh, Show me, uh, an episode. YouTube. Show yeah. me. Read my mind. It, it showed me a, this <laughs> clip from, I don't know what season. my mind. <laughs> does it know that I'm looking for Mork and Mindy? <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. I don't know what season of Mork and Mindy this was, but it's it's an interesting scene because it features Robin Williams playing himself. So where Mork oh. meets, yep. meets Robin Williams yes. playing himself. And they wow they make they make just a few offhand jokes about how they look, look exactly alike. And it's, it's so surreal because the characters who would be most impacted by the fact that they they're identical don't even seem to be bothered by including right, Robin Williams exactly. himself. He's like, yeah. Oh, you look like, um, Oh no, he's, he's, he's not a, or she, or she's not a woman anymore or something like that. I can't remember what he said, <laughs> but it features him, his character, the way that scene is written sounds very true to life of how it makes me wonder if, if uh, Robin hmm. himself helped script that scene. Who knows? Um, I got to say that, that, um, around, you're right that they were getting more experimental. I, I mean, there are certain concepts that you're like going, that should have been comedy gold. I, I really enjoyed the idea of our son is Jonathan Winters because they age backwards. That's funny. In concept, I remember watching going, yeah, every now and then that was funny because they're both comedic geniuses. But I do think that there was something where they were like, um, yeah, Robin, what would make you happy? Do you have an idea? Is there some kind of gag you want us to include? Because I doubt he sat down and he wasn't a writer uh, other than I don't think he really wrote his own like stand up material. I think he just kind of mentally composed some ideas and riffed because that was his genius. But yeah, so I'm sure they did just say, hey, I know that you really want to go off and make some movies with Walter Matthau or <laughs> the hell. Uh, man, the survivors. I love that movie. Actually, you go back and rewatch it, and it it actually is much more resonant <laughs> now. Oh, I and loved like, it at the time. That that's the time. But finish your thought, though. We'll get that. We'll oh yeah. In a second. No, so I'm sure that's all that was was basically them like, oh, this would be kind of clever, and more, and probably Robin Williams is like, yeah, okay, because I I can't literally sit on my head for the rest of my life. I can't <laughs> just do that gag. I can't drink yeah. with my fingers for the rest of my life. <laughs> I remember that when I th- that was the last season, right? When Jonathan Winters came on, was that was the final one? I think just, uh, maybe the last two wacky. seasons, last two seasons. Yeah, I think I remember that. I remember thinking that the season was just not only was it just not funny anymore, but it was just it seemed like they were just getting desperate. Yeah, you know, tr- just trying to think of all this wacky crap to to keep people interested. Um, <laughs> wacky crap. I do remember there was at least one scene. I remember. Oh I remember, no, it was the last remember, season. It was they it only was brought him back okay, for yeah. one. Okay, there we go. That makes sense. The thing with Rob, Robin can't not improvise. Even when he's doing dramatic stuff, he winds up improvising. Yeah. So, of course, Jonathan Winder is also a brilliant imp- improviser. So they, there, there are some scenes I remember in that season of Mark and Mindy where the two of them are just riffing off each other and doing ad lib stuff. Yeah. So it was. I, I haven't seen that stuff in so long. But, I know. just remember that, uh, and I'll say this generally, because now that we do this podcast and it's fun to talk and do the whole nostalgia thing, which I know is not what we started out to do, but 
we're getting old and oh. and it's fun to revisit some of the stuff but when you go back and watch anything that you thought was hilarious when you were <laughs> 11 it's not unless it is something eternal like a looney tunes cartoon or like the marx brothers which we've talked about that kind of thing where it's like and robin williams himself will always be amazingly funny but there's something so sweaty about uh studio sitcoms you know the multi-camera live studio audience sitcoms and there are classics again i can watch the dick van dyke show any day of the week and still just go hilarious it's just funny but so much of that stuff that when i was a kid in the 70s and i loved happy days i you you know those channels that you get now the streaming like free channels like freebie and tubi and all those mm-hmm. things that you get pluto yeah uh in fact it is pluto that has an entire happy days channel and i was oh. surfing around and i was like oh I haven't watched a Happy Days episode, like a full episode, since I was a kid. And it happened to be one of the Pinky Tuscadero episodes. Like, do you remember his Fonzie's girlfriend, Pinky Tuscadero? Do you remember when they would do, even on something like Happy Days, like a to be continued, like a dramatic two-parter? And this was the uh, Demolition Derby. And it was Fonzie and Pinky versus the, um, what are their names? The, The brothers, the... Oh, I can't remember. They were like bad guy brothers. One was really stupid. The other guy was very flamboyant, had like a pirate hat. But anyway, they were they were greasers and they were tough. And so the demolition derby happens and basically Fonzie and Pinky have basically wiped everybody out. Pinky's car quits in the middle of the place and she tries to get out of the car. And the two other, the bad guys smash her car, which makes her fall on the ground and it's like Fonzie stops his car and runs and holds her body. And it's like to be continued. She turns out to be fine. She goes to the hospital. She's all right. But she does yeah. leave at the end of that episode. She's like, I just can't be tied down. I got to roam, which is basically their way of going. She's not going to be a series regular because Fonzie's got to hook up every week. So um, right. so basically, I watched that and I went, oh, nothing about this is good. <laughs> I am watching people I really like because, yeah, I Ron Howard is great, and he's doing his earnest best. Donnie Most, I was like, I used to think Ralph Mouth was hilarious. I'm like, no. And, uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, and of course, Henry Winkler is a treasure. But it, I just was like, oh, God, this would have had me enwrapped back in 1976 yeah, or whatever the right. hell that episode was. Oh, but anyway, yeah, that's, that's on – us so you guys we're not disparaging go out experience <laughs> watch some old market mindy watch some old happy days and laverne and shirley enjoy um uh yeah the other the, the mark thing i was saying because we messaged each other about this we haven't actually talked about it yet the, the old jerry lewis movie uh visit to a small planet yeah which i did watch i haven't watched the whole thing yet but the well i've watched most of it and it is actually like you said as you said it's actually pretty good uh do you remember yeah. who wrote it it's based on a play written by a famous author no. who Robin Williams has made fun of, by the way. There's going to be a strong Robin Williams thread in this. Gore Vidal. And whenever oh, I Gore hear, Vidal? Oh, yes, that's right. I did know Whenever that. I hear it yes. in Gore Vidal, I always think of Robin Williams' first comedy record. Like, oh, this is Gore Vidal for Thunderbird wine. <laughs> Take two. <laughs> oh, this is Gore Thunderbird for Vidal wine. <laughs> Take three. Gore Vidal. Uh, is, uh, well, I mean, he was, a uh, 
he was a figure of his time, was fairly well-respected, you know, novelist and historian, uh, sort of historical novelist, but also just a raconteur and was almost always on like Dick Cavett or whatever and was holding forth and very full of himself. But the best thing I think he ever did, did you, do you remember Bob Roberts, the uh, Tim Robbins movie from the early 90s? No. Oh, my God. Bob Roberts is great. It's the one where it's a mockumentary and Tim Robbins is playing a a conservative presidential candidate named Bob Roberts. But he has. Yeah, he's using sort of um, folksy leftist stuff to, you know, disguise how fascistic he is. So he sings like folk songs about, uh, you know, uh, how all these people don't need um, you know, Medicare and that kind of stuff. And everyone's like going, yeah, he's awesome. He's like a rock star, young conservative. And Jack Black is like, that's one of the first things I ever saw Jack Black in. Cause he plays this young kid who is like a worshiper of Bob Roberts, follows the, the tour bus everywhere, keeps being interviewed. And over the course of the movie, you see him becoming more and more like insane like including like carving a symbol into his forehead and and uh he uh become he tries to assassinate Bob Roberts at the end of the movie. But Gore Vidal plays a character in it um who is like the actual uh liberal like opponent and he could act. It's really good. I love the idea that Tim Robbins is like, "Oh, I know exactly who I'm going to cast for this guy to be the voice of reason and liberalism." And it was Gore Vidal. Very very good. He refused, Tim Robbins refused to ever release a soundtrack album because all the songs were originals that were written for the movie. And they're actually pretty good. And he sings them himself. And he refused to re- because he goes, people will take these seriously. Yeah, these were yeah, meant to be parody. Wow. I don't want this out there like because someone could actually try to use them on their campaign trail or whatever. And he's like, no, you're not getting these songs. It's pretty great. All right. Um, so, but anyway, so the... Uh, Visit to a Small Planet, written yeah. by Gorvidal, who actually directed it and stuff. But it's a great cast uh, and a yes. very solid 1960 comedy. Uh, and Jerry Lewis is great in it. He does a really he turns in a really great performance. And there's just and I, I don't think there's any. I haven't been able to find any like direct connections between that show and Mork. But there probably is a thin thread that runs through that and the other things like that happened in between. Because we go, we go from. Uh, by the way, people who haven't seen it. Visit to a small planet. Jerry Lewis plays this goofy alien. He's that, also kind of sweet. It, it, yeah, he is. Yeah, because always he Jerry Lewis is like, I'm kind of just a kid. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He does kind of come from his, some other. His realm. character is supposed to be like Spock, like like no emotions, but he's yes. he is expressing emotion throughout. That's the only thing about his performance that doesn't make sense based on what it's yeah, supposed to like, be. How it's written. He's like because he's supposed he to be dry he, commentary. Yeah. And instead, right. Jerry Lewis can't resist being Jerry Lewis. Mm-hmm. And, and you know, and but I the, have no problem with that. <laughs> but there's some basic tropes in it, uh, which weren't really tropes at the time, but became tropes. I don't, and I'm trying to figure out, it's, it's in, be interesting to look at this a little more closely to figure out, you know, the origins of some of these ideas. But he plays this goofy alien from another planet. It's supposed to be a planet, but it's, it looks more like a realm, almost like he's in heaven. And yeah. he comes from this. He's he's part of this uh, this league of of uh, guys who fly flying saucers around, and he's he's constantly getting in trouble with a superior. And his character's name is Creton, by the way. 
Yeah, yeah. K R. Oh wow, I haven't watched this in so long. Yeah, 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 yeah. And so he's he's obsessed with Earth. So he's constantly going around flying around Earth and just flying saucer and pissing off his boss because he's not supposed to be over there. And <laughs> so he's he's uh says you can't do that anymore. And then of course he keeps doing it, and uh, and he winds up going going to going to earth and his, his his boss follows him there and says okay look fine you can stay here but you complete this mission whatever good, good i forget what it is like study human emotion or something but it's very much like mork mm-hmm. uh, uh, mork was was sent away from orc because he, he was annoying his boss they sent him on this mission to kind of get rid of him uh and he's constantly reporting to orson orson's always you know perpetually frustrated with mork yes it's, it's very similar and also even the, the depictions of orc in in the series were just kind of this plain soundstage with some you know mild backlighting and the 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 planet that that creton is from is basically a plain soundstage with fog and stuff and it's oh uh, yeah it's yeah yeah and there's also a weird connection uh intent you know for, for real or not when he, he has he has like uh tele- telekinetic powers that he activates right. by tugging on his earlobe and then mm-hmm. flaring his nostrils. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And this is three years before bewitched. Uh, so it's very, every time he does that, it's like extremely bewitched. All, all it's missing is a little sound effect. <laughs> it's like, instead of it's, it's his earlobe and his, that's actually, uh, that was, um, registered and trademarked. Uh, so <laughs> you just doing that right now, you owe them some money. So there were, there was, I forget when Mork, premiere was that 70 78 79 or something oh like i just had it open again let me see so it was nearly uh, nearly 20 years between that movie and that series but in between with there was my favorite martian but he would have appeared you know, on happy days probably in right, right, yeah. seven before that obviously there was bewitched and there was also my favorite martian martian that came after that so yeah one not, thing i'll say i don't know i mean i think it's it's a zeitgeisty uh yeah. trope and and it could have been like directly someone going, what if I did that and did a kind of a twist and da da da. But it does go back that kind of trope of the supernatural being outsider who wants to observe us and done either seriously or for comedy is that's so there because literally in 1946 you had It's a Wonderful Life. Oh, I knew I'd get to bring it up. Um, because angels very often, like Clarence in It's a Wonderful Life, are very often those kinds of figures, pre-science fiction-y stuff. The pulps with aliens and spaceships go back to the 30s, really. But as far as public fascination with aliens, that doesn't kick in until literally the year after It's a Wonderful Life. 1947 is where the first UFO flying saucer account sweeps the u.s and then you'll know in pop culture because you've heard all the novelty songs about you know one-eyed one-horned flying purple people eater and and all these ufo songs right there from 47 into the 50s suddenly if you were going to do a movie where you had a supernatural being you could also do things like because bewitch is clearly bell book and candle and i married a witch those are like two uh, plays and movies that came before and they're like going well we're just going to do it with this this sexy young lady and and this goofy looking dude and it's now a tv show but yeah i think i think it's just that the aliens replaced you know it's like yeah we're not going to deal with with ghosts you know like topper or things like that now it's going to be aliens but they'll be like us but they're curious about earth so I think that did become like, yeah, we, we can return to that well a lot. And I will defend 
my favorite Martian, if only because not a very funny show, but Bill Bixby <laughs> and Ray Walston. Yes. Come on. For the win. Yeah. For the win. Right. FTW. Come on. They're just great. It is like yeah. when we talk about things like Cole Shack, where I'm like going, even the worst episodes, I don't care, man. Darren McGavin is amazing. So when you hear the like, ha, 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 the canned laughter on a My Favorite Martian, you might not be laughing along, but you're like going, these guys are great. They are Cracker Jack, the way they deliver this stuff and the way they play off each other. Great. But anyway, yeah. so yeah, I think you're right. I think there's a thread where they're probably like, we could do something like, you know how when uh, supposedly when you're pitching your scripts to studios, the whole thing about the elevator pitch where they, what is the shorthand version of your story? Because they don't want you to go act one. This happens. So the whole thing of the elevator pitch, I have a feeling that something like Mork and Mindy was literally them going, saying something like kind of like a guy version of bewitched, or they're probably sitting there going like, imagine this. You remember that Jerry Lewis movie? visit to a small planet but we go back weekly with this kooky crazy alien played by this incredible improvisational comic so i'm sure they probably did refer to it all the time and go like yeah it really is it it almost feels like an extended pilot for for mark you know with with different characters when you watch it yeah it's 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 uncanny really and uh uh, man he's in that like silver jumpsuit kind of thing and I want to go back and watch that. That's one yeah, it's, that I don't, it's not it's in fun. my canon of like the really, I've got to watch, rewatch these, but it's not bad at all. And it's definitely preferable to, you know, I'm not going to watch uh, <laughs> any of those eighties ones. I can't, I can't do that. I just can't. What is it? Uh, it's a, it's the, the title is a, a spin on close encounters. Is it a, Oh, slapstick of a different kind or something oh, sl- of another oh, kind. Yeah, yeah, because it's Vonnegut. And literally that's Vonnegut. a Vonnegut novel. Oh, that's so, right. And that was that was literally um Jerry Lewis going, Oh, yeah, this is kind of like a, a little bit more prestigious because it's an adaptation of a novel and it's me and Madeline Kahn. How could that go wrong? Because she's amazing. Well, it can go wrong several ways. <laughs> Horrifying makeup just a weird comic tone that never works because they're both being nutty and also trying to be kind of edgy and it's Vonnegut. So it's going to have all this commentary and you're like, no, this isn't working. They're like, I guess, have there been any good movies made from Vonnegut novels? Well, I mean, I I, know there was, I do like Slaughterhouse five. And I I guess I've never seen this Slaughterhouse five. It's good. I think probably the earliest adaptation, I think of any of his novels and it's at the right point in the seventies where they're like going, we're not going to shy away from any of it. We'll go dark when it needs to go dark. And I think that's why it didn't get an audience because Vonnegut really doesn't. I he he's challenging to translate because he is drop dead funny. And then he's going to hit you with something. And you're like, damn, tonally he's all over the map. And I think that that audiences who go see a movie, they want it to be one thing or another. They want it to be, I want to go see Slaughterhouse-Five to see a gritty war movie. Okay, but it's not going to be that because there's science fiction elements because the aliens who you know take them and they put them in the little uh, greenhouse thing. And there's just things in there that um, unless they had read the novel, they would be sitting there going, I don't know what the fuck I just saw. Yeah. <laughs> it's got time travel-y kind of bits and all of his memories and he's walking through his own life and you're like, what the fuck? 
but yeah. I do like that one. Breakfast of Champions wasn't very good. Oh, I was about to ask who. When was that? Because I was that wondering was, if that had ever been made. That was nineties. That was Bruce was Willis really? trying for again a, a prestigious kind of thing. Oh no, he directed it. No, no, he's in it. <laughs> I, yeah, I don't think Bruce Willis it? ever directed anything. Okay, who's who yeah. directed it? Do you remember? Oh, that's a good question. Um, I had you no know idea what? about this. I was about to ask because I, I was thinking certainly somebody could do Breakfast of Champions, like maybe Vim Vendors or a. I, I think know, that they Cohen Brothers it, type of thing. They gave it a solid shot. I don't think it's a complete disaster, but it is not considered very good. Ninety nine, and it was directed by Alan Rudolph, and Alan Rudolph. He's no one to sneeze at. And it had Albert Finney in there as Kilgore Trout, you know, the recurring character. And yeah. it had Nol- Nick Nolte, Barbara Hershey, really Omar Epps, really good cast. Buck Henry, our old pal. Uh, but I no, I never heard it about. failed. Yeah, it, it wasn't in theaters long. And it was, I, was- I got to say, though, looking at uh, Alan Rudolph's filmography, he really didn't have such a good lighter run the last one of his i really liked was uh 1994's mrs parker and the vicious circle which i really did like a lot but anyway yeah okay you you could uh rent it that would be or you could probably go to target and buy it for (laughs) (laughs) 5.99 so so talking about going back to watch old things that yes you know maybe they're not as good as you remember but you still love it because of who's in it and yeah and and also you have a um like a emotional connection to it because it was part right. of your childhood that's kind of how i feel about the survivors and i remember loving yeah. it when it came out one of the reasons i remember so fondly is because it was one of the few movies i remember actually seeing at the alabama theater which later oh, became wow. a bookstop before you know before i never it, saw a movie at the alabama um i, I saw never empire did. strikes back there i saw the survivors i saw the incredible shrinking uh, woman those are the only three i really incredible remember shrinking woman yeah i'd that's be curious another. to revisit that i used to think that was I know. hilarious but I, I've rewatched The Survivor several times since then. And yeah, it's not amazing. But I mean, come on. Robin Williams, Walter Matthau, Jerry Reed. I know. They're, and they're great. The chemistry between the three of them. I wish they had just made like a bunch of like like Bob Hope and and and, uh, <laughs> and was it and Fred Astaire? No. Bing Crosby. Bing Crosby. That's what I was thinking. Of. Yeah. yeah. If they just, they, the three of them just should have just kept making movies till Walter died. <laughs> they're all completely. I mean, the those people should not be in a movie together, but it is one of those things where it worked because it was so unlikely. Their, yeah. their styles are completely different. Walter Matthau. I mean, they're all solid actors, even Jerry Reed. I'll say I've seen Jerry Reed do some stuff. I was like, yeah, yeah. you actually had chops. You just got used to, I'm just the good old boy guy. But if that, like in the survivors, when he's like a badass, you're like, Oh no, I'm buying that. So the whole thing is Yes. It's one of those things where you don't think that it'll work, and sometimes it doesn't. That's reminding me of, do you remember, um, oh, crap, I can't remember the name, but it was the drama comedy that had Tom Hanks, young Tom Hanks, as the son of, uh, uh, why am I blanking? Cut this out, because, uh, yeah, Honeymooners. You're having a me moment. (laughs) I'm having a you moment. Uh, Honeymooners? uh, Yeah, the great. The oh, great Gleason? one. Thank you. Jesus Christ, I couldn't bring up Jackie Gleason. Actually, instead of cutting that out, could you extend my brain fog for another five minutes? Put, Make it just as still and, lo- <laughs> and just loop in me going, uh, 
Uh, yeah, the one where they're they're father and son, and everyone. I remember the lead up to that movie. People are going the hot new comedy guy, Tom Hanks, who can act with the classic Jackie Gleason, who could do it all. You go back and watch Smokey and the Bandit, and I'm sitting there going, "That is a performance for the ages." And I'm not even oh, joking. God, yeah. He's so Come good. On. He's yeah. so good because that is not a character that he had ever done before, like that kind of Southern dude, and he is nailing it. Mm-hmm. I'm going to go home and punch your mama in the mouth. <laughs> <laughs> Fucking love it. But anyway, so Jackie Glee, and it didn't work. That's one of those things where famously they didn't get along so well. and that, Oh, really? Yeah, the critics said, nice try, everybody, but this did not work. Because very different generations, different styles. But I yeah. do think in the case of the survivors, there's a tension you're supposed to be feeling anyway. They're not friends. You know, it's like they're not. There's something wrong with all of these characters. Yeah, but they, they become friends at the end. They become it's friends. Very long. Right. It's it's pretty well done, I thought. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I, I mean, um, I, I haven't seen it in years. It was one of those movies, The Survivors was, where they would show it on HBO like um, three times a week for five years. <laughs> like early HBO, they seemed to have the rights to like four movies, and that was one of them. Another yeah, one was yeah, Arthur. Yeah. It'd be The Survivors, Arthur, and Humanoids from the Deep. You know, they'd have like the three movies. Hope you enjoyed these. Here it is again. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I do remember those days. Like Every mm-hmm. time you turn the TV on, it'd be the same thing. Yeah. HBO, like, oh, okay. Great. Okay. So that finally, the, the, these these threads just keep going. Jackie Gleason reminds me of another thing I was going to talk about. Actually, I have it in my notes here. Uh, that clip, Jackie that Gleason. I, I who's out, he? <laughs> <laughs> that that clip of uh, of Animal Crackers that I put out. Oh that, yeah, which was taken from a couple episodes back of you briefly talking about that one scene in Animal Crackers. Uh, there was somebody, and we messaged each other about this. There was somebody on, uh, when I put that clip on TikTok, uh, this guy came and said, well, well, that was actually, that was a real mistake, that, but it happened on the theater, in the theater production. And then, and they, and then they wrote it, it into the in script. the film because it was, yeah, they wrote it in the script. So, and this is an interesting thing because people in those comments, people go, oh, you can tell it. And I said, I disagree. I think the if, that's, if this is true, that it's not improvised, this just shows you how good the actors are. So I went and looked because you and I, I remember you, you showed me Animal Crackers, you know, ages ago. And I remember you. Because I care. Yeah. Poking fun at the supporting, supporting cast who stuck out like sore thumbs in the way that they were acting. Most of them. And that, that scene is, is a a classic example. He's got Louis Soren playing, uh, AB the fish man. And he's like very over the top, like, what you know and he's he's yes i'm realizing now i think a lot of that was obviously they're coming from the stage production war so it was vaudeville style you know right camp right acting and i think i'm wondering if, if a lot of them I'm, I'm sure i'm saying this it's probably known stuff there's been so many books written about uh this era but yeah the they, early sound I era. If they were deliberate they're they're doing this over the top acting to kind of distinguish so that the marx brothers are more in the forefront with their performances i wonder What's but, interesting uh, is, from what I can tell, um, the Marx Brothers didn't really alter anything about what they did for the films, um, except maybe the director said, you guys don't have to shout anymore. But I think the the cartoony uh, acting and tone of all the people, including your romantic lovers and all that stuff, is completely 
it's definitely from the vaudeville stage. Um, yeah. I think the the reason that Margaret Dumont, who became the foil for Groucho in so many of those movies, one of the reasons she worked so well in them, and the reason that Groucho's like, please keep doing this, and she's like, I'm the butt of all the jokes, and, and it's like, but you're the best thing. It's because uh, she was very stage-bound, and she was a serious actress, and that made her perfect because she didn't get the joke. Uh, and I think some of the other people who are, you know, even broader, it could just be that they were still trying to, in their minds, compete with like, I want to get a couple laughs myself because we, they probably were in the stage show and they're like mm -hmm. going, Oh, I can get a great uh, bit in here as a, B, the fish, a, B, the fish, man, a, B, the fish, man. Um, yeah, yeah. <laughs> the whistling. I can't do the whistle. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. A whole thing. Oh my God. Um, but all that stuff, I think there was, it, it really is a carryover. And I think that, yeah. I do think that the Marx Brothers, because they were all geniuses in their own way, they were learning as they go. Because if you watch Coconuts, which is the very first Marx Brothers film, that one clearly is like a locked down camera. It's like 1931 or something. So they were barely into sound at that point. You know, it was literally Dracula's filming over Universal. It's at the same time, they're like, oh, yeah, we're going to have dialogue. But. I think they had to learn like, oh, we're running all over the place. They can't even follow us. We have to. It's real shrill coconuts. And yet it has some great bits because they're shrill? just. What do you mean? Shrill as in uh, even sound design, because, again, the recording isn't isn't great either. So there are bits that just devolve into you can't understand what anyone is saying because they're talking on top of each other. They're acting uh -huh. like there's the audience in this, you know, uh, right in front of them in rows. And mm -hmm. I think they did in the next movie go, we can pull back a bit and just keep the energy where it was uh, because we don't need to hit the back of the, the, you know, the audience. It would be nice if the directors had said the same thing to, again, all these supporting actors. Uh, generally speaking, they're always good. But Margaret Dumont is is always the man that bit. I think it is also from Animal Crackers. You asked me that tricky question from was it one of our uh, viewers who said, what's your favorite Marx what's Brothers favorite? film? Yeah. yeah, he commented on, on YouTube. It is impossible. Yeah. It's just impossible. Yeah. And, and also yeah. Marx Brothers movies, generally speaking, are a collection of bits. The one that is a movie, actual like a story that kind of actually has an arc. I would say, you know, Duck Soup is actually probably their masterpiece, but there are funnier bits for me in some of the others. But that mm -hmm. whole thing where he's wooing uh, Margaret Dumont, I think, in Animal Crackers, and he goes, <laughs> I can just see you now leaning over the stove, making dinner. Only I can't see the stove. <laughs> 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 It's just the perfect delivery of everything. I fucking love them. Can't and you I, see? I, I love you. <laughs> I'm wondering if the, the version that we watched, because uh, this line was cut out of it and then restored, was the. Oh, I think I'm going to try to make I think I'll try and make her in the beginning song where he's. He oh, right. That yes. line. They cut that yes. out and then they put it back. It was um, too scandalous. But but this getting back to the, the Jackie Gleason thing. 
uh, Louis Sorn is the the actor who played Roscoe W. Chandler or A.B. the Fishman in, yeah. uh, in Animal Crackers. And he is, as we're saying, overstatedly like bad acting, like, oh, what? Huh? Uh-huh. And but but then the moment where he messes the names up, he it's so natural. And yeah. you realize and knowing now that that was not I mean, that that was scripted that that yeah. he, he makes he, he sells it so well. Yeah. And I went and looked up. Louis Soren later, uh, Mr. Like, Chandler. Like Mr. I, I mean, sorry, I, you. He yeah. goes, no, I'm. I'm. Wait, you're. Yeah, he's like, I'm Spalding. Yeah, he's, he does this finger thing. It's like it just seems very like it's actually happening. Louis yeah. Soren went on to be. Uh, he was a character actor for many years. Then there's there's uh, a, at least one episode of The Honeymooners that he was on. Oh, some. <laughs> it does all it was, tie together. <laughs> Twenty years later, right? Yeah. Um, and he plays a neighbor of. What's the what's the family's name in Honey? Oh, uh, the Cramdens. Yeah. I'm the glad Cramdons, that yeah. that just popped into my head while I couldn't remember the star's name. He plays a sort of a stereotypical Italian, you know, character. Uh, like, hey, what a! But he's great, and he's not at all like the Louis Sorn we see in Animal Crackers. He's you wouldn't even recognize him just on his performance alone. He's it's he's good. He was a really yeah. great actor, and there are quotes of where Groucho Marx saying he was one of the best straight men he ever worked with. Oh, that's so, great! I mean, and and so again, I, I was I, kind of like, "Wow, okay." So that really was a an act, you know? And yeah, the, the yeah, over overstated thing that was a style that he was doing. It wasn't. I think I think it really is uh, these, especially the first uh, two or three movies, were stage shows that got adapted to film, and a lot of the times the cast was exactly the same. Uh, so, uh, and they preferred to do it that way. They anytime they got a new script for a new movie, they wanted to take it on the road as a stage show to work out all their bits. They took that shit seriously. So they, they're like, yeah, the script is good, but we can uh, play with it and we'll come up with our own stuff. And so it's, it's great that that was their process is like, we want to see how this lands in front of an actual audience. So I'm sure most of those people that were in their show were, you know, long time, uh, cohorts, and talented actors, but it was a different style. You froze up. I don't think you're still there. I don't think you exist anymore, Chad. It's just me here all by myself. And yeah, that's a cue. So all by myself. This is a pro <laughs> show. I, I'm having a day. Let's just say that. So I find that I find that fascinating that that you have these people who were had spent decades in vaudeville, mm-hmm. um, now transitioning to this new medium and trying to figure and out. And actually, that's not just to- that's all. That's also not just Marx Brothers. But if you watch other movies of the early '30s when sound is brand new, and you're watching, well, silent movie actors getting used to sound and have to adjust how they are acting, but also a lot of the performers that become really big. Were I mean W. C. Fields was totally vaudeville, and then, uh, but his style was never you know big. It was all the little muttered things, and he becomes a huge film star without having to really adapt his style at all. But you do see the struggle where they're like going, "Oh, what? How big is too big for the movie screen?" Yeah, uh, it's an interesting time. That I mean, had I taken film classes, which I never did, but I would totally have studied that. Because I do love vintage early film. It's great. And sometimes it's terrible. But generally speaking, um, <laughs> yeah. Somebody mentioned, too, and this is totally true, that the humor 
of the Marx Brothers. Obviously, I didn't see them on the stage, but so much of those first two movies, especially, are, are very are just, much just straight from the stage yeah, play. Yeah, they're so their humor is so timeless in a way, and just the the characters they're playing and the way their humor is conveyed. I would seems- say the, the the trickiest one is is obviously Chico, um, and yeah. but at the same time, he goes past being an ethnic stereotype to he has a character, and it's not just I'm Italian. The character is all about the scams, the gambling, all the stuff, which is actually what he was like in real life. <laughs> um, so he basically gets a pass and he's very funny. And then, of course, you know, the piano bits. I got to say, I never fast forward through the harp or the piano bits. I, I love them. The only thing I ever fast forward through are the songs, the the romantic lovers where you have. Alan yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, one of the crooners of the day going, and you, my love, I will. And I'm like, Jesus, no one cares. No, yeah, one cares. that's true. I remember you warning me about that before we sat down to watch it the first time. I was like, just yeah. we're going to fast forward to this part. Just, <laughs> yeah, just it's kind of like with the, the can you read my mind part. Of it. Exactly. <laughs> just get through me, it. When we get to that scene, I'm fast forwarding just so you know. <laughs> just so you know, because I think it, it, it doesn't kill the movie, but it, it, it gives it a grievous injury. <laughs> yeah, I, I think I remember Richard Donner saying in the commentary, it's like this may have been a little, you know, going a little too far here. Yes. But, so. I mean, I get it. It is a beautiful piece of music, and the lyrics are not bad. Um, you want to put that over the credits with Melissa Manchester, who did take it to, I think, uh, she was the one that took it to the top ten oh, really? on the pop charts. Yeah, it did go up the charts. Um, you want to put that over the credits, great, because that's what you do with film credits. You put a song with lyrics on it. And you're like going, I didn't know there was a song called we are in a towering inferno. That, that, that didn't exist. <laughs> but you could have done that and just had that be this very beautiful flying scene with yeah. no, none of that voiceover. Yeah. I'm sure they fixed with editing or something. Yes. Yeah. And I'm sure they were actually thinking they probably said, Margo, can you sing? Because this will be, you know, you can sing it. And I'm sure she's like, nope, nope. (laughs) (laughs) So what you're going to get spoken word. Oof. Oof. Yeah. He's right. That is not a good, good thing. Anyway, Um, moving on. But uh, uh, bouncing back to, to uh, animal crackers. I was, we done a lot of bouncing in this one. I was rewatching, uh, my favorite bit, but one of my favorite bits anyway, is the whole, hello, I must be going. Oh Um, my God. Hello. You're ready for uh, captain Spalding, all that stuff. And I love the bit. Because this is one of the scenes I think you and I were rewinding it and, we, and rewatching oh, it. You say, look at that, look at that. When he he's he uh, says, I, "Hello, I must be going." Lala, and he turns. <laughs> he, every time he tries to get away, the crowd stops him, <laughs> yeah. and, and then he tries to fake him out by doing it really quickly. Yes. <laughs> and then he goes, he, he turns to Zeppo's character, is like, mm, "Oh well," <laughs> like this, and he does it a couple of times, and he's tear- and I, that that moment just strikes me as really sweet because it struck me as this. I know a lot of it was scripted, but you know, he, they were ad-libbing too. And some of it sure. I think, was him goofing around and Zeppo is, is his little brother. Yeah. And he's, and I, you see him when he turns him, he does it again. And Zeppo's like, he, he, you're like, and it's the like, you, thing, see, you see this as warm moment between brothers in that moment. Like, well, you know, big brother making a little brother laugh. I, I, you know, I, I gotta say, I, you can see traces of that in pretty much everything right up to that terrible TV pilot. They did that never got picked up when they were really old. And it was them as angels again. Uh, we're we're wow. bouncing back to that. Yeah. Um, and 
Groucho famously said, we only took that pilot because Chico needed the money. It's like literally he, and they're like, all right, well, Harpo, you in? Okay, let, let's go do it. And they did this terrible pilot and it's really good. It didn't get picked because they look ancient, black and white. And they're like, Harpo and Chico are angels on motorcycle going down to help humans and Groucho's the boss, God. And it's like, ugh. yeah. Um, yeah, don't bring that up ever again. But there's a lot of <laughs> examples of that where even when they're doing the, you know, like the classic bits, like, uh, <laughs> see this here, this is the viaduct. Okay, I give why a duck, you know, all that stuff. But there, it's just this twinkle where it's like Groucho is, of course, always playing like the asshole guy, mm-hmm. um, taking advantage of the poor, stupid guy. But there's always this thing where you know that Chico is not as dumb as he appears because that's just there. And you also see that Groucho was so amused to be playing off his brother. I just, everything in those movies is they found things that they could each do and celebrated making them iconic figures. Groucho, I still is the best, but Harpo is amazing. The silent stuff, the, the shtick, it's just endlessly inventive. He's been copied and never uh, matched. Just, you never will. And Chico was great. And Zeppo was fine. And actually, according to Groucho, I, I did read, his autobiography and i've read also other biographies of him and also i read harpo's autobiography but apparently zeppo they're like going yeah he was the funny one but they never found a character for him which is why he was always just like i'm your personal secretary they're like but off camera he's the one that cracked all of us up and you're like wow i don't see it at all and gummo gummo bowed out after the stage stuff never ended up doing the the movies and he went on to be like a tailor great but anyway, so, um, no, I, I fucking love them. And every little bit, that's, I do remember us sitting around watching those on VHS because pre-DVD days, it was literally like, stop, watching this again. Stop, watching that again. Because some bits, you had to just explore. Yeah, like it goes by too fast, but I want to watch the reactions of the people behind them. It's just like when you get to again one of my favorites, Doctor Strange Love. I, uh, which is of course not Marx Brothers, but the whole thing is you can watch that last scene of Doctor Strange Love in the bunker talking about how they're going to survive post nuclear war, and you're fascinated with him and all the stuff he's doing, his crazy accent, what he's doing with his hand, all that. And then you have to back it up because you realize you're not looking at the people behind him who are losing it. They left it in. You see people cracking because he's breaking them up. And and the, I'm so glad that Kubrick's like, no, no, that's a take. We're leaving it in. Even yeah. though the people are going, <laughs> trying to hide stuff behind their hands because they're going, uh, mein Führer, I mean, Mr. President. <laughs> yes. is like, uh, we, we, animals can be bred and slaughtered. <laughs> Fucking love those guys. Yeah. So anyway, yes. Um, I, I think that the timeless comedy of the Marx Brothers, and when I say Looney Tunes, you pointed it out too, they were so influenced by Marx Brothers for their zaniness. And clearly Bugs is very much modeled on Groucho. Um, oh, so God, yeah. a lot of that stuff is just like, these are references when you watch classic Looney Tunes and they're referring to like they, 
you know the running gag in those early Looney Tunes where they go, "Oh, Frankie," and they'll have like the the skinny uh, chicken rooster with the bow tie, and he's crooning to the ladies, and like, "Oh, Frankie." No one, no kid today would go like, "Oh, that's a comment on the Bobby Soxers who are crazy for young Frank Sinatra." They're not getting the reference. It's still funny. Yeah, because you've got crazy exactly. voices and you've got female chickens fainting at the sight of this ludicrous <laughs> character. And you're like, going, I love that it can transcend yeah. its period because yeah. it's just funny. Yeah. Because you had Funny's genuinely funny. funny. Yeah. Yeah. All the people who made those Looney Tunes from the from the, the Foley artists through, yes. through the animators and yes. the scripters and, the, and, of course, the, the voice artists themselves. Good Lord. Just- another another uh, Brendan this isn't famous, but it's connected to that. But another Brendan story of my days at Warner brothers, they have a museum on the lot, the Warner brothers museum. So all of our tours of the studios would start there. It was basically a place where you could just unload the tour and they would wander the first and second floors, looking at props, famous things. And it was awesome. You could just hang out for a bit. And then after 20 minutes, you'd load them back in the golf cart and then go see the, the, the place proper. They had some amazing stuff in there. They had Chris Reeve's Superman suit. They had the Maltese Falcon, one of the originals, because they made like three or four for the movie, but it's one of the originals. They had the piano that Sam plays from Casablanca. I mean, it's there. It's the one that he played, you know, as time goes by. So all that stuff is there. Upstairs, they had an entire back wall that was original proofs and cells, drawings, and... uh, uh, from the animation unit. So it was like originals of Elmer Fudd and Bugs Bunny and stuff. And what was awesome is there was a husband and wife docent team um, who had worked there in the 40s. And now they were elderly, but they would show up at the museum in case people had questions or just wanted to talk to them about what it was like back then. They were very sweet. And they had both worked in the animation what they called the termite terrace was the name of where the animators were. It's like, they didn't mingle with the stars. They were in this like rackety shack and they were making all of the cartoons. And the wife lady had been one of the ones who would paint the cells and the husband can't quite remember what he did, but their stories of working with like Fritz Freeling and Chuck Jones and all these like giants of the time. I'm just sitting there going like, speak on because to me that is magic those guys weren't celebrities but the stuff they made good god and it's like oh you know what's interesting was he's like you can see how daffy changed and he's like they're just telling the stories of like you know because daffy from his first appearance is completely different they toned down how crazy he was because originally he was literally insane and i was like and all that stuff is like and then he became like this mean foil for bugs and that was a lot of chuck jones's influence and i just sit there going i love that stuff yeah mm. okay yeah, yeah that's yeah. the stuff that you can revisit and is not painful to watch you're like going that is still quality absolutely with a it, k because that, that think, makes it funny quality I, with a k yeah <laughs> Uh, there, there was a, I can't remember. I think we touched on this once before the guy, I can't remember their names. Now there, there are two guys who are famous for having done the voice of Popeye. Well, it was really the second hmm. one. who was more well-known. And I, I remember the first guy 
was kind of a problematic guy. I think he was, <laughs> it was one of these situations where he was demanding more money or it was just, oh, problem. he oh. was held to work with. So they, they wound up firing him or he, he may have just disappeared. I can't remember what the story is, but he was replaced by somebody who worked in the animation department who just happened to be naturally good at doing voices. And yeah. the story is that he got in trouble, almost got in trouble for imitating his boss's wife. <laughs> he he got, got caught doing that. But somebody, one of the producers, I, I guess, had heard him doing, because this guy would be working in an animation department. He'd just be doing Popeye's voice. And he was great at it. And they, they knew they needed to get rid of this other guy. So they, they had a backup. And, and they handed the, this job to him, and he became he continued doing voice work for the rest of his career, all the way up uh, until the eighties. Most of the Popeye voices you, you were, that we grew up hearing were would him. have been him. Yeah, the very early, early, early ones were this other other dude. But uh, the early ones, those early Popeyes. Uh, there's also an interesting thing, man. We are old fucks. Anyway, uh, <laughs> we weren't around for this, but uh, again, we watched yeah. all this. No, no. There, if you watch the early Popeyes, which is also around the time of early Disney, they also had not figured out how the sound stuff works and their layering of stuff. What's hilarious is you can't tell what anyone is saying in the early Popeye cartoons. And it's not just that he's got a weird voice with weird pronunciations. It's also Bluto. They, they thought that sound for cartoons should just be nonstop. So they're all mumbling constantly. And Blue was like going, ah, you want a little bit of this? I'll show you. I'll got a, got a big old fist for you. And he's like, oh, you think it's big? And they're just on top of each other. And you're trying to watch a cartoon going, what are you what? saying? And olive <laughs> yeah. oil's in the background going, oh, Popeye. And you're like, yeah. please take a breath. Let right. people have sentences that they say, dialogue. So like, yeah. oh, come on here, I'm going to get you. are like going, that is just chaos. That well, is what I hear in my head when I go to sleep. Yeah, I'd like to know when they figured, because I think in the real, those really early cartoons, they would do the voiceover work after the animation. So it was the, those actors were sitting there kind of ad-libbing. True, yes, that's true. Um, so at some point, by the time we get to, to the era of Mel Blanc, he Look, would someday let him go on the mic and they would animate to his someday one of the reasons why those cartoons are so should, great. Yes. Someday we should do a tribute, like a full on tribute oh, to Mel Blanc. That yeah. man was a God. Yeah. And it's so easy to overlook what he did. He's just making voices. And then you look at like the Simpsons cast and you know, like they've been doing it for so long. They're all incredibly talented. They all do multiple voices. They are nowhere near Mel Blanc. And they all just sit there going like, no, no, it, we could be doing this a hundred years and we're not going to touch what Mel mm-hmm. Blanc did. The man could switch between the voices instantly with mm-hmm. different tone, different comedic beats because he knew the characters so well and he could improvise in the character voice. Like Jesus, just don't even. I, By I'd the way, that, that closet door behind you keeps kind of like um, opening <laughs> on its own. And I keep just <laughs> wanting to go, wow. It's um, one of my mom's cats down there. He's there. Yeah, hungry, so you they're... can say that, but I'm just, it's almost you can tell me if your time, place so is haunted. Trying to, he's trying to figure haunted. out ways to get my attention. What are you doing in there? Well, he heard us talking about the great Mel Blanc. And he's so he's like, I want to show up. <laughs> but yeah, let's save that for another day. You, <laughs> if we're wrapping up, by the way. Oh, this stop. Like this stop. <laughs> What's his name? Dexter. Dexter, you're a sweetheart. Man, right. don't show me cats because I can't, <laughs> I can't have one because small place. And I'm like, ah, I really want to. Uh, yeah. Oh. Oh, I was, I was, briefly, I was going to say before he distracted us. Yes. Uh, Mel, I'd forgotten when I was. I had. I pulled up that Buck Buck Rogers footage that that I put in the 
one of the short versions of the, uh, the, it was a clip from the Electro Woman and Diner Girl where you mentioned Wilma Deering from Buck Rogers. Yeah. And I'd forgotten the Mill Blank does, but uh, does uh, Tweaky. Tweaky. Yeah. Beady, beady, that was beady. one of the last things he did, I think. Yeah. You're probably right. Yeah. Or towards the end of his, his uh, yeah. career. Yeah. Screw you, Buck. <laughs> <laughs> it is interesting that I think um, they had something like towards the end of the series, they realized that his voice had, was just naturally deepening. And so even Tweaky didn't sound like it was like, Oh really? Yeah. It was like, beady, beady, beady. And they're like, <laughs> they're like, Hey Mel, it's okay, man. Just take it. <laughs> go take a nap. Get yourself some tea. Uh, but he is a giant and I miss him still. You have homework to do. That's what I'm telling you. Go see a movie or two. I know I am. I did um, see Barbie the other night. They did. Did you enjoy it? I really did enjoy it. Yeah. Well, hold on. We'll talk about it. Another yeah. Time. This is how distracted I've been. I was trying to buy tickets for Blue Beetle, and I just wasn't <laughs> paying attention to what I was tapping on. And I got the confirmation like, "Here's your tickets for Barbie." I'm like, oh, <laughs> they both okay. start with B's. To be <laughs> to be fair, <laughs> and just... they're very similar films. <laughs> uh, um, I enjoyed everything I've seen this summer. I really want to go see different dumb, degrees. Dumb Money. Did you have you seen seen that no. one? No. No, with, but uh, I saw Paul, the trailer for it. Yeah. yeah. I got it's getting great reviews from what I've seen. And another quick bit of news, which is which is nice to hear, Indy Five, which is now in video on demand, yeah. Um, is doing much better. Oh, in, good. In, on video demand than it was in the theater. People just so didn't want to go out. They didn't want to go out. Yeah. Understood. I just saw a video John Campy was talking about it. It's like it's doing just as well on via video on demand as as the as like Spider Verse and um, that's good. Guardians, I mean, it, it completely 3. deserves it. We yeah. that's that is one of the big questions as to. I understand if movies uh, are bad or middling and they don't do what was expected, but that movie is not bad. No, that movie's far from bad. It's great. Right. So I just don't understand why people slept on it, other than. Maybe people don't want to go see old Indy. I don't know. Anyway, so that was nice to hear. We're going to be okay. Yeah, we are. <laughs> We're going to be okay. <laughs> so I think, uh, well, in a couple of weeks, uh, Ahsoka will be wrapped up. And yes. We haven't talked about that we yet. We haven't talked about it. And I got to say, that is a show that with each episode gets better and better. It really does. Yeah. Yeah. I in can't very surprising wait. ways, I have to say. Yeah. So we yeah, will definitely no, we got to hold off on that. There's okay. a lot to talk about and unpack. Okay. We will do that. All right. All right. Thank you, people. Thank and, you. Uh, please. If you want to support our, our, uh, our poor Habits. selves. Yeah. Uh, jump on Patreon. Uh, we've, we've got early, early releases of all the episodes there. And Chad's got to get his car fixed. <laughs> I got to get my car fixed. <laughs> oh, Lordy. All right. And, yes. Uh, bye. Peace. Apps. All right. <laughs> Peace out. The fact that I'm watching my mom's cats works out because I found a really good auto repair place in the Heights, which is you're uh, watching the cats. What are they doing? No idea. (laughs) Then you're not watching the cat. (laughs) I said it. Mm -mm. Mm -mm. (laughs) Mm-mm.